When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Oliver Morton, The Economist's briefings editor. This week, we carry the torch for Einstein's theory of light and the technologies which it has inspired and enabled. We're taking all his data, all his images, and uh, hopefully we'll discover things that we don't even know about or we can't even dream about. I've gone from thinking it's great to work in solar because it might one day be one or two percent of the world's electricity mix, to it being cheap, the cheapest source of electricity in the world in many countries. When you think of Albert Einstein, you think of the big hair and maybe a guy sticking his tongue out. But after that, you think of the theory of relativity. But Einstein's Nobel Prize for Physics is not for his work on relativity. It's for his work on the nature of light. His extraordinary insight, the only thing in his work that he himself ever called revolutionary, that the energy in light comes in little packages. Those packages are now called photons. And those photons are one of the prime resources for today's most extraordinary technologies. My first real job was working with lasers. I was a freshly minted physics graduate and got a call from a scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which was well known as the home of the world's biggest, most powerful lasers, and, and he offered me a job building and, and using them. How do you say no to that? You might recognize that voice as Jason Palmer, host of our daily podcast, The Intelligence. Before he was filling people in on global news every day, Dr. Jason Palmer used to work as a laser scientist. I worked with what are called ultra-fast lasers. Their, their pulses are really, really short in time, femtoseconds, millionths of a billionth of a second long. And those have lots of uses, both in industrial processes, but also in, in fundamental science at the, the shortest timescales. After he put the finishing touches on his theory of general relativity, Albert Einstein returned to an earlier passion about the interaction between light and matter. And though he didn't call it that, what he discovered was the basis of the laser. Laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Now, what does that mean? Normal light is what's called incoherent. The waves of its photons all wiggling in different directions and at slightly different frequencies or colors, really. In certain materials, you can put in incoherent light from a flashbulb or an LED, and as it's absorbed, it creates what's called a population inversion. Lots of atoms are all in the same excited, agitated state, storing up that energy. If a light beam of a very specific color passes through that material, all those atoms dump their energy at the same time as a stream of identical photons. That's the stimulated emission, and that's how the light is amplified. What's important, what makes it a laser, is that those photons are coherent. 
wiggling not only in the same direction at precisely the same color, but with their waves peaking and troughing together, so that incoherent input light has been transformed, concentrated, into a tiny bit of space and often a tiny slice of time. There were some scientists who were coming up with ideas and arguments on why this was either fundamentally impossible, respected scientists, so it was not to be ignored, or practically impossible. That's physicist Theodore Maiman speaking in 1983. He's the one who proved all those scientists wrong more than two decades earlier, when he made the world's first working laser. It was actually just uh, one year after the laser was invented that they started to be applied to laser surgery. In medicine, they used from everything from, I guess, destroying kidney stones to studying how viruses invade our cells. Few people know this stuff as well as Mike Dunn. He's led some of the world's biggest laser facilities and currently works at one run by Stanford University. Lasers are the basis of how we're talking now on the internet. Optical fibers that underpin our communications are, are driven by laser systems. Almost every aspect of our life is touched by lasers now. Ted Maiman's first laser back in May of 1960 was maybe just a few hundred watts of power. That's about the same as a toaster. But his approach that he adopted, which is making a short pulse of light, a burst of laser light rather than a continuous beam, actually provided the direction for all the future development. And so today, the most powerful laser in the world is not a few hundred watts. It's what we call 10 petawatts. That's 10 million billion watts, or one with 16 zeros followed after it. And to put that in context, you know, the, the electrical power generation of the entire planet is a few thousand times smaller than that. And <laughs> you think, well, how can that be? But of course, it's because the, the laser light is delivered in an incredibly short burst of time. And so the amount of energy is only tiny. So the lights don't dim when you operate these lasers, but the power is huge. So we've come a long, long way from a few hundred watts to almost making up phrases, 10 petawatts is where we are today. When Maiman invented the laser, he foresaw loads of wondrous things that lasers could achieve. But to his regret, the media focused on just one thing, its potential as a weapon. It not only makes the United States invincible in war, but in so doing, promises to become the greatest force for world peace ever discovered. You'll notice that all of the sharks have laser beams attached to their heads. I figure every creature deserves a warm meal. Ingenious, isn't it, Mr. Bunt? Scorpio, you're totally mad. Science fiction has had such a hold on the public's imagination that President Ronald Reagan even proposed using lasers to defend America against nuclear attacks in what was dubbed the Star Wars program. I call upon the scientific community in our country, those who gave us nuclear weapons, to turn their great talents now to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. You do see lasers on the battlefield, just not the way you would think, just not as those ray guns. I mean, they're used to map out terrain, you know, the so-called LIDAR, which is a light-based radar, or as the basis of, you know, super precise gyroscopes for navigation. Or, of course, for making a lot of the precise equipment, you know, their, their ability to cut and weld and peen equipment in a very precise way. But as ray guns, they're actually not very uh, effective. One of the main reasons is the air in between you and your enemy tends to disrupt that, that laser beam. And so you may start out from the, the end of your ray gun, you know, a very powerful beam, but by the time it, it traverses, you know, a few tens of meters, you know, from you to where you want it to go, it's been disrupted by all of that atmospheric interference. Dr. Dunn thinks there are far more interesting things lasers can be used for, apart from weaponry. 
there's a very large number of applications of lasers to do with investigating disease you know, and how our bodies respond to disease and how drugs fight disease. You know, obviously a huge issue for the entire planet at the moment with, uh, with COVID. And the ability of lasers to image, whether it be the level of a cell or the level of a molecule that's uh, trying to invade a cell, teaches you an awful lot about the structure of those cells, the structure of those molecules. And because laser light can be delivered incredibly quickly, you can look at the motion of those molecules and those cells as they're responding to some environmental attack, let's say from a virus. And so that can help teach us how to build you know, better and better pharmaceuticals and understand to a you know, greater and greater degree how our body fights disease or where it goes wrong. Objectively, and as objectively um, as I can think about this stuff, it sounds as if you hold out all the same promise for the laser today that, that you might have had 10 or 20 or 30 or even 40 years ago, that the, the vistas are, are still wide open. Actually, I think even more so. And, you know, I think back at the very beginning of lasers, you know, there was an old joke about, you know, a solution looking for a problem. And, and now, you know, perhaps it's just, just the, just the reverse. At the beginning, you know, people scouted out a number of different possible uses of the lasers. As I say, eye surgery from the very beginning. But now, given the ability to tailor and tune the lasers to these incredibly precise levels that we've seen, you know, for communications, for manufacturing and so forth, I actually think the, the future potential is far, far larger now over the coming years and decades than it has been over this first uh, 50 or 60 years or so of the laser. But still, no ray guns. <laughs> well, maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> and you can hear more from Jason every day on The Intelligence. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Lasers are the ultimate technology for expressing light. But there's another technology one that's also changing the world, which absorbs it. Turning sunlight into electricity, scientists of the Bell Laboratories at Murray Hill, New Jersey, demonstrate a solar battery which converts light into power. A small amount, yes, but a big first for science. It's a simple device made of strips of silicon, principal ingredients of ordinary beach sand. Enough light from a lamp to power this toy Ferris wheel. Lights on, she works. Lights off, the motor stops. The solar battery may lead to the realization of one of man's most cherished dreams, the harnessing of the almost limitless energy of the sun for man's use. Now, you could quibble with the idea that harnessing the energy of the sun was one of humankind's most cherished dreams. It's not the stuff of myth or Shakespeare. But since the 19th century, when it became clear that almost all the forms of energy available on Earth, wind, rain, coal, were in some ways eventually powered by the sun. Scientists began to get excited about the idea of doing without the middlemen and going to the sun directly. The problem was the only way they really had of using the sun was to heat stuff up, and coal and wood do that just fine. The big thing about the solar battery of 1954 was that it made the 20th century's quintessential and most exciting form of energy, electricity. Sunshine went in, current came out. Early solar cells were very expensive. His voice has carried only a short distance, but larger batteries may someday power our homes. Lamplight from sunlight. In 1954, Bell Labs calculated that using its photovoltaic batteries to power an American home would set you back about $1.5 million. But you don't need to be cheap to be a breakthrough energy technology. 
You just need to do something that the other technologies can't. And over the decades, solar power took up some of these niches. First of all, it was brilliant for using in space. Then it started being used to power buoys floating on the seas or remote oil installations. And as it became more used, it became cheaper. Scaffolding is now a pretty major part of the cost of solar panels. It's a total waste of time to be building a roof that faces even vaguely in the right direction and not be putting solar panels on it. I'm Jenny Chase, the lead solar analyst at Bloomberg NEF, and I have been for about 15 years. During her career, Jenny has seen dramatic change in the industry she covers. I've gone from thinking it's great to work in solar because it might one day be one or two percent of the world's electricity mix to it being cheap, the cheapest source of electricity in the world in many countries. But solar's success is of a very peculiar sort. The sector is full of companies going bankrupt. Solar manufacturing is a terrible business to be in because solar is getting cheap so quickly. And making solar panels is not fundamentally that difficult. It's a commodity product where the turnover in the equipment used to manufacture them is phenomenal. So if you've got a factory that's five years old, it's probably somewhat obsolete already, and you probably haven't paid the debt back on it. No solar company has a market capitalization of more than $10 billion, and no solar CEO is in danger of being recognized on the street. Yet, while solar is hardly a gold mine, in terms of coming to grips with the climate crisis, it's utterly vital. Currently, about 3% of the world's electricity is supplied by solar panels, which isn't a lot, but it's a lot more than I expected when I started this job in 2005. And ultimately, our company's forecast is for 23% by 2050 of the world's electricity supplied by solar. Personally, I think it's going to be a lot more than that. I think that the modelling was based on an economic transition, and we're not in an economic transition. It's pretty obvious that governments are really putting their foot on the accelerator. And also, things are happening just faster than we expected. So I wouldn't be surprised if solar ends up being 50% of the world's electricity by 2050. Coming up, the cosmos, and how to take pictures of it on a digital camera. A single image is 3.2 gigapixel. And you may think the internet is wireless, but in fact, it's woven from light. We were able to get 28 terabits of information over a single fiber cable across the ocean. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. We are taking all this data, all these images, and uh, hopefully we'll discover things that we don't even know about or we can't even dream about. Hello, my name is uh, Vincent Rio. I'm an engineer working for the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, but I'm also the project manager for the LSST camera, the Legacy Survey of Space of Time, which is to be run on the Vera Rubin Observatory. 
The LSST camera is in effect the largest camera in the world. What it's for is to actually conduct a 10-year survey on the Vera Rubin Observatory Telescope, trying to basically capture as much of the sky on the southern hemisphere as possible, which means that the entire southern hemisphere would be having images taken about a thousand times over the course of 10 years at a very high resolution. And this allows a lot of science to be done. That would be the largest survey ever done by mankind. And that would allow a lot of science, which we don't even know what that may be, which is what's the exciting part, is that we are basically providing all this data, which can help us discover new asteroids, understand better the solar system, but also maybe understand dark matter and dark energy. When you're talking about dark matter and dark energy, you're right back with Einstein and his ideas about how mass could warp the space-time continuum of the cosmos. But to actually see that in action, you need the other side of Einstein. You need a way of picking up every single photon you can coming from a particular part of the sky. And that means you need a big camera. The Robert Observatory is located in Chile on the mountain ranch, and it has a telescope, of course, that will capture, you know, the light for the camera. And that telescope has uh, three mirrors. And the first mirror is over eight meters, so it's, it's quite large. But what's interesting about this telescope, as opposed to other telescopes, is that it's very squat. And the reason it's so compact is because we want to take as many images of the sky as possible, which means that we have to move very quickly and make sure that after we move, it doesn't move anymore. It doesn't vibrate so that we can get a good image. The camera is actually quite large. You could think of it as about the size of a minivan, Volkswagen camper van, if you will. It's about that size, which is quite impressive when you sit next to it. The larger lenses is about the, the size uh, 1.6 meters. So a single image is 3.2 gigapixel. And so if you think of your iPhone, your iPhone is about 12 megapixels. So it's basically would be equivalent of having your full iPhone resolution about 260 times. So imagine your iPhone taking a picture and you, you multiply that picture by 260 times at the highest resolution. And that's kind of the size of the image that you get as a single shot, which is quite amazing given that you can put the moon in it a few times in that image. It's very high resolution when you start zooming in. But the first picture the team took was less cosmic, more cauliflower. When we took a picture of a, uh, of a broccoli, it was <laughs> pretty funny to see that you could quite see a lot of details on that. So it was almost a microscopy. So it gives us kind of a, a nice way to, to see those fractal-like features and capture some of those details. We've been taking pictures for a long time as humans. Even though this image is very large, you know, even a hundred years ago, technically we could have taken images that big, just have a lot of plates. I think the fact that we are able to now distribute this exciting data to the world and, and, and make it public to everyone so that everyone can do the science, you know, in their own house. Students can, can go there, can discover things. Basically, everyone now is empowered to discover things where before, you know, only scientists that had special privileges would have access to some, something like this. I think for me, that, that's, that's what really makes this very exciting. We are empowering the world to be part of this discovery of the universe. And, and for me, I think that's the part that really excites me to work on this project. You think about everything you do from day to day, there's very little that happens now that doesn't involve a network or a data center. 
Hi, this is Rob Shore. I'm the Senior Vice President of Marketing for Infinera. I've been in the telecommunications industry and more specifically in optical networking uh, for about 27 years. Vincent's Cosmic Camera relies on equipment from Infinera. It's a company which specializes in building laser and transceiver technology that gets as much information as possible into tiny whiskers of glass. The reality is the vast, vast majority of the world's infrastructure is connected by fiber optic cables. And, and information is transmitted across those cables using lasers, essentially. And as we go, uh, I've progressed here over the last 40 some odd years of optical fiber communications, the laser technology has progressed quite substantially. To now the point, uh, we actually just did a um, trial with Facebook that over the transatlantic cable, we were able to get 28 terabits of information over a single fiber cable across the ocean. Historically, lasers use what's called direct detect or on-off keying, where you've got essentially just two different power levels for the laser, and it's either high power or low power. That's how I get my ones and zeros. One way you can get a laser to do uh, provide more information is instead of just having two power levels, you can actually have multiple power levels. So 100%, 98, 96, 94. Instead of it just being a one or a zero, you could say, hey, if I go from the highest power level to power level two, I get two bits of information as I make each transition. If I transition from the power level one to power level three, that then on my little lookup table would be a one, one. So this is one way without transmitting information faster I can actually get more information out of every time I make a transition in power levels. So that's called amplitude modulation, and it's one way without increasing the speed of transmission that you can actually eke more information out of every symbol that you transmit every change in state. But is there a limit to how much information can be transferred this way? Obviously, one of the key factors for how much information you can transmit across a fiber is the distance. Over greater distances, it becomes more challenging to transmit more information. As you add amplification, it's going to add noise. But luckily, we don't need to guess what the capacity of a fiber is. Claude Shannon came up with a formula that sets the absolute upper limit of the capacity of a fiber. To that end, by the way, we're actually pretty close to it right now. Maybe we're on what's called the fifth generation of this coherent optical technology that has a peak individual optical signal rate of 800 gigabits per second and peak performance. And uh, I think these next generations of uh, different optical technologies and different optical solutions are going to have to try to find ways to overcome that. You can't break the barrier, but uh, you can overcome it in a variety of different ways. One interesting technique that we're finding on subsea is something called spatial division multiplexing, which is really just a fancy term for saying putting cables in that have more fibers in them. Uh, as I said, the Maria cable, I believe, has uh, six or eight fibers, something like that. And we're seeing new spatial division multiplexed subsea cables being put in place or being planned that'll have 12 or 14 cables in them. So I'm not increasing the capacity per fiber, but I'm adding more fibers. And that's another way to approach it. So interesting ways around Shannon's limit, even if you can't break straight through it. After all that, you'll be forgiven for thinking the world is made of light. Well, it's not. There's a lot of other stuff too. But the photon, massless, infinitely reproducible, faster than anything else, has turned out to be one of technology's most vital components. It's not all down to Einstein. Indeed, Einstein never really reconciled himself to the way that modern physics treats the photon. But he had the idea that energy came in these tiny packets. And then legions of scientists and engineers took that idea and applied it to all sorts of fields. Sometimes they fluked their way into discoveries. Sometimes they were pulled there by massive subsidies. Sometimes they just kind of happened. But for a century, 
Photons have been illuminating not just our rooms, but our thoughts and our possibilities. A century on, Einstein's golden age of light still has a huge amount to offer. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. If you're looking for more positively illuminating journalism, why not subscribe to The Economist? You can read my technology quarterly on the century of bright ideas that Einstein ushered in. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer for the best introductory offer. And while you're with us, maybe you could send some photons down the fibre to Apple Podcasts telling them how much you like us. I'm Oliver Morton, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.